Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Joanne Kwai, your host for today. I'm a visiting PhD student at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Joining me today to talk about her latest book, The Web of Meaning, The Internet in a Changing Chinese Society, is Elin Yuan, an associate professor and the director of graduate studies at the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Elin, thank you so much for joining us here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So shall we begin by a little bit of introduction of yourself? Can you tell us what have led you to your current research interests? Oh, yeah, sure. My current research interest focuses on social cultural implications of new media technologies. Because I guess my first job after my graduation from uh, the college was working at the audience research division of uh, China Central Television. So I was fascinated by the um, growing media industries ever since. So now since the internet, it's one of the most important forms of media. So it's very natural for me to take on research projects on the subject of the internet. So your book is published this year. Congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit how you came to write a book? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, As I said in uh, the preface of of the book, that uh, the internet and China are probably among the most fascinating, dizzying developments in the world these days. So it's just very natural for me to think about along the lines like the role of the internet in changing Chinese society. In the mainstream research on the Chinese internet, people mostly tend to focus on the political implications or economic implications of the internet. Uh, my perspective is more to study the online population, what the users do online and what they talk about, what they debate about, how their actions and their symbolic activities may bear consequences uh, on the changing society. So your book is titled The Web of Meaning. Mm-hmm. Why did you come up with this title? What do you want to uh, convey through this title. What what does it mean by the web of meaning? <laughs> right, that's a good question. So it's actually I borrow this phrase, the web of meaning, from uh, the sociologist Max Weber, uh, a German sociologist, like who believed that uh, humans uh, make sense of the world, uh, wave their own web of meaning upon which all other practices are made. Uh, understoodable, all other uh, activities are understood, and, and meanings originate from uh, these that, uh, cultural uh, symbolic activities that we, we self uh, do. As I said, that I'm interested in the culture aspect of the Chinese internet, so I'm focused on what people make sense of changing society, what people make sense of their own changing positions in such a changing society through symbolic activities, through getting together to talk about their daily lives, their changing environments. So I borrow this term uh, to reflect the, the culture aspect of the internet. 
Mm -hmm. So the first chapter of the book touch on the internet and the social changes in China, and you mentioned in your book that looking into the vernacular of the internet can offer us some clues to understand the fast-changing Chinese society.、Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned a couple of words such as "shamate,"、uh, smart,、mm -hmm. or "dousi," loser. And very recently, we also see a new batch of words that's coming up, such as "involution,"、uh, "nejuan." Or like lying down, tamping. What kind of societal changes do you think these kind of new words reflect? Yes. So these two words, involution, lying down, neijuan, tamping, are among a slew of most recent internet vernacular that people、uh, use these days.、Uh, so that's a new example of how the symbolic activities actually、uh, are most useful for us to observe and understand the Chinese society these days. So, involution refers to the phenomena where people experience tough competitions and without the prospect of growth or advancement. <laughs> and lying down probably refers to people' sense of hopeless, giving up. Some people argue that it may be a sign of、uh, resistance, the weapon of the weak, if you if you will. So. I guess this re really reflects how the, the the young Chinese online、um, population feel or react to tough competitions in education, in their careers, and also reflects their complaints uh, or uh, anxiety over the exploitative work environment. I am sure that you've also heard a, a term that appeared more or less about the same time. Nine nine six nine nine six. It refers to the long working hours, which huge platform corporations such as Alibaba,、uh, Tencent, these new forms of、uh, economic development based on new technologies, based on technological developments, it reflects on the new economic models, new forms of inequality. At the same time, because this is a very new phenomenon, so there there aren't any new social contracts. Accordingly, this sense of、uh, lack of job security, lack of social support,、uh, lack of social wel welfare programs such as limited educational resources,、uh, expensive housing market, and so on and so forth. So it, it it creates this tremendous sense of loss and sense of anxiety among. Uh, younger generations. I would also argue that it, the popularity of these terms also reflects this kind of lack of alternatives to the neoliberalist and consumerist social imaginaries, because people all pursuing bigger houses, bigger cars, better paid jobs, and so on and so forth, without the alternative imageries of better society. And talking about inequality, there's actually still this huge digital divide in China. The gap between the urban and rural. You address a little bit in your book.、Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us what has the evolution been of this like digital divide, and what is the role of the internet in bridging or widening this gap? And is there anything that can be done to eliminate this kind of inequality? Oh yes.、Um... I believe the, the Chinese model, if there is one, of technological and economic development,、uh, it's more or less motivated by nationalist, developmentalist, and socialist 
goals, as well as the tensions between these goals. So, so nationalist is more like we want to be independent. Uh, we don't want to be limited by uh, foreign influences or foreign hegemony. In light of the recent uh, trade wars or recent sanctions by the United States, some tech firms in China, you can see this nationalist tendency uh, sometimes uh, placed in conflict with developmentalist approach because uh, to develop, you, you need to integrate yourself into the global community, economic community. So you want to develop, but at the same time, uh, you are under the pressure of an outside hegemonic forces. And at the same time, inside, when you develop, you also have to keep up with the, the socialist legacy that is to make it in a more recent rhetoric, to make it more harmonious society. So these three different goals are always in tensions with each other. At the same time, Technology also operates as a double-edged sword. I'll give you an example. Like nowadays, China almost has become a cashless society. You go everywhere without having to pay with cash. But that creates issues with those who don't have access to mobile pay apps, especially the, uh, the poor and the elderly. At the same time, it also makes, of course, uh, one of the reasons these apps become so popular is because they do make daily life more convenient. So uh, my point is that the Chinese government at the same time also uh, put a lot of effort to uh, promote the telecoms infrastructures as much as the effort put to promote, to construct roads and high-speed train systems. So telecommunications industries, especially the emerging e-commerce industry uh, and the internet industries are actively promoted by the Chinese government as a means to uh, upgrade their industrial mode of development into a post-industrial mode of uh, of development and and information uh, mode of development. I've got some uh, newest data from uh, CNNIC, the official uh, organization that publishes official data about statistics about uh, the developments of the Chinese internet. According to the the most recent CNNIC's data, 90% of the poverty-stricken uh, villages, so a lot of the poor villages, are connected to the internet. Uh, more than 800 of them are covered by e-commerce services. And also, for instance, online education. It's, it's also one of the focuses of, of governments at, at various levels. So according to CNNIC, that the number of primary and secondary schools in China with internet uh, connection has reached almost 99.7%. So almost all uh, primary uh, and secondary schools in China are online these days. So all these measures are means uh, by the Chinese government to to sort of eliminate or reduce poverty in China. In the book, there's a very interesting depiction about Chinese interpretation of privacy. And now that the personal data protection law is on the horizon, what would you think would be the impact of this law on the Chinese society? Mm -hmm. And actually, can we uh, step back a little bit and just talk about what is the Chinese interpretation of privacy and how is it different from the Western perspective? 
I think um, the indigenous sense of privacy in China was a little bit different. I mean, uh, from what we understand, how it is understood in the Western perspective, because the, in the West, privacy or the right to privacy are the, one of the fundamental principles in, in liberalism. Is where you draw the line between the individual, the self, uh, and the um, external forces. So it it is first and foremost a way to curb the big uh, government in the effort to limit the government power, so that uh, the individuals can have freedom or uh, free space to self uh, actualize themselves there to to realize their uh, sense of purpose in life. Uh, and then uh, you come to uh, daily practices, how the individuals protect themselves against external uh, forces. And I would argue that in China, we don't start from this fundamental sense of right. On the other hand, in practice, we do have this growing sense of individuality in Chinese society. So one of the purposes of this chapter in my book was to find a way to gauge how Chinese people understand privacy. Um, so what I went on online and, and tried to observe, uh, collect data from social media and uh, observe how people talk about privacy and how people practice privacy. So as a result, after uh, uh, examining a large amount of social media data, I found there are like many different dimensions when people use the word privacy in their daily lives. The largest realm it is the private social realm where people use the concept of privacy to sort of adjust to new emerging relational values, new new social relations situated in changing Chinese society. For instance, they think about how they should treat each other, how much personal boundary or personal freedom, a personal space, a person is allowed in relation to their mother, their spouses, their classmates, and so on and so forth. So in that regard, it is a sort of organic response to changing socioeconomic environment. So this new law, it's comparable with uh, GDPR, the, the, the European Union's uh, version of personal data protection regulation. And it, the, the Chinese state uh, also asks individuals or organizations and businesses to respect and ask for users' consent before they can um, collect, use, uh, disseminate data. Although compared to uh, GDPR, the Chinese version well, in addition to individual rights, the Chinese version also puts emphasis on the national security goals. So in other words, it is a, it is a well, uh, we welcome this sort of uh, regulations to protect individual uh, uh, rights to uh, their data and to protect their, their rights. But uh, as I said, this law, or this regulation, it uh, operates within the, the field of information market. But then there's still social realm that is not exactly, does not exactly operate as a market. 
so the, the activities such as how you treat your spouse in terms of how much privacy you should give your husband or give your wife, it's not should not be regulated by laws regulations in the public sphere. So when we talk about the Chinese internet, there's uh, uh, one thing uh, hard not to address, which is the so-called Great Firewall uh, of China. Uh, some say there's a even a generational gap of the Chinese internet users between those who have experienced the early days of the free internet and those who grow up without, for example, access to Facebook, Instagram. Uh, because of all the censorship, and some even attribute, for example, the phenomenon of the little pink, the young patriarchs of China, mm-hmm. uh, to this kind of censorship. So I'm just wondering, what is your take on that? Mm-hmm. Um, good questions. Um, uh, I agree, first of all, that censorship exists, uh, exists in China, and nowadays we can observe uh, very clearly that it also exists in other parts of the world. But, but I think this metaphor, the Great Firewall of China, it's, it's a great exaggeration um, of, of how internet regulation works in China. And if the Great Firewall exists, it can only be worse since the surveillance technologies have become so advanced nowadays. So it, if, if it does exist, it probably operates in a much worse uh, degree. And then secondly, I deeply doubt uh, how effective this so-called uh, the firewall operates. Uh, because after all, the little pinks, those, uh, those teenager girls, uh, they made their names in activities outside the wall, um, in those high-profile uh, events, uh, all mostly took place uh, on Facebook, which is out, which located outside the uh, the wall. Uh, for instance, these uh, these little pinks, if you will. I, I personally very much don't like this label because uh, it's uh, for various reasons. I don't want to elaborate here. So they they uh, organized this uh, teenager girls, uh, very boisterous, uh, very vocal online. They they uh, are really good at organizing. Uh, organizing themselves. And, and the reason for that uh, is because most of these girls are avid fans of popular culture, popular uh, idols. And so they usually organize themselves to support uh, the uh, pop culture idols, singers, uh, pop stars. So that's how they uh, get their tools, uh, digital tools, to, to um, in, in those uh high-profile online events uh, in which they got their name. And then this popular culture is, operates uh, in a global uh, context. So uh, their, their idols are from Japan, from Korea. So I would argue that they're not uh, <laughs> uh, ignorant or isolated uh, dopes, if you will. They're very much informed, uh, very much skillful, in contrast, when you say that nowadays and versus earlier generations, uh, I, I, I also want to quote some uh, most recent data from CNNIC uh, to show how much further integrated the internet in the in Chinese society. So the most recent figure of the Chinese uh, online population is almost one billion. 
uh, almost uh, one in five of the world's users. And the proportions of these online population who are under 20 and above 50 year old, years old of age have increased also significantly. In contrast to the early generation of online population who were mostly uh, college students, uh, younger generation uh, or, or nowadays we have uh, the majority or the largest portion of uh, online population are middle school, high school students. So in contrast to the so-called the little pinks, I, I, I'm more interested in these uh, younger generation, um, less uh, educated than earlier, more elite generation of uh, internet users. One interesting phenomenon is the Xiaozhen青年, the youth from uh, small towns. And they, I, I'm more interested in, and more drawn to uh, their socioeconomic cultural lives than this more limited group of uh, urban young girls uh, who are very much part of the fan culture online. So this is Xiaozhen青年, small town. Uh, youth, uh, their use of the internet, how they live in in cyberspace, and how they make sense of their lives, what kind of cultural expressions they have, are much more interesting than Little Pink's and their uh, nationalist uh, uh, expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Actually, last year was kind of very turbulent and memorable year for right. all of us uh, because of the COVID pandemic. I'm just wondering, what would you say that how has COVID changed Chinese people's relationship with the internet? Hmm. I think, like the rest of the world, they uh, people uh, relied on more the internet to um, uh, in their daily lives. Uh, I also got data from CNN. I see that the more than 80 million people going online in the wake of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. So that's a significant growth during the pandemic. So uh, the same is true with the number of people who work uh, remotely, uh, who work online during the pandemic. But there are more people shopped online than people who use online education, healthcare services during the pandemic. China has been the world's largest uh, online retail market for the past um, six or seven years. And during the pandemic, uh, the uh, retail sales also uh, jumped up by like 10% or so. And another um, trend is uh, online broadcasting uh-huh. has become a new uh, form of digital part of a for a new part of a digital economy nearly more than 90 percent of all chinese internet users watch online videos it's uh even more than those who shop online so online streaming uh it has become so popular so these are the the trends that during the pandemic i guess uh similar trends can also be observed elsewhere in the world uh, that's you know, pandemic makes uh, the internet. I mean, a lot of industries and businesses suffered tremendously, but the internet industry is definitely 
experienced tremendous growth during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we're going to expect it to be more integrated into people's daily life, I imagine. Yes, uh, I guess so. If if um, we cannot go completely, com- com- cannot go back to where we were before the pandemic, then probably we'll have to rely on... Yeah, to adapt to the new reality. Yes. Uh, We've given a lot of your time. I just have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you working on right now? What are some of your current projects? Right, yes. So it's time to um, start a new project. So I've been reading up on the history of uh, the IT industries, since the post-war era in the U.S., uh, for instance, the California ideology in the 60s and 70s and the uh, development of Silicon Valley and, and then how the uh, IT industries uh, grow, the role of the, the state and policies and, and, and so on and so forth. And it is a part of an effort to understand the, the context of global capitalism and the geopolitical context for the technological development in, in China. So I'm more interested, in, I'm transitioning from the symbolic aspects of, of, of the internet to like political economy uh, of, of the IT industries. And this is the, uh, the area I'm currently um, working in. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to seeing more of your uh, research results. Then you can come back and share with us again. <laughs> yeah, I would love so, to. Yeah. So, yeah. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. And to our listeners, Elaine's book, The Web of Meaning, was published by the University of Toronto Press this year. And you can also connect with her on Twitter at Elaine Wynn, that is at E-L-A-I-N-E underscore Y-U-A-N and with me at Joanne Kwai, which is J-O-A-N-N-E-K-U-A-I. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.